Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack Waters, now episode number 93. Before we get stuck into this Q&A, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them onto your Instagram stories. Also, if you are listening on iTunes, it would mean a lot to us if you could please leave us a review. And if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, which you can search The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google. You can find the link in any of our Instagram bios as well. Also, all of the questions that we answer on these episodes are actually from you guys, from the listeners, and we do welcome any questions. So we do put question polls on our Instagram regularly throughout the week. So if you are looking to ask us a question for the podcast, you can head over to our Instagram at The Bodybuilding Dietitians and give us a follow. Alternatively, you can just slide into our DMs. Yep, slide right in there and uh, fire away. Give us all the questions you have. So getting straight into this first question, this one says, what are the best tips or advice you have for practicing your posing? Cool. So... Some of you may have noticed we're getting a lot more competitive questions. Mm -hmm. And I think with COVID wrapping up, all of the shows are getting back on track now. Like there's a a show that was just completed last weekend and there's shows to come in Mm -hmm. Australia. So yeah, we're probably going to be answering a lot more bodybuilding specific questions, which we both enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, bodybuilding dietitians (laughs) over here. (laughs) An important point to make with posing is that It is literally what's going to separate you from someone else other than the muscularity and conditioning aspect. So you could bring in your best muscularity, best conditioning, but if you can't pose and show it off, then someone else will beat you. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that happen before, right? Yeah, definitely. And because it's not just getting into the poses, it's also like maintaining those poses, choosing the right pose for you. Like let's say a side chest, for example, someone might sit deeper into a side chest. Someone might be more upright. Someone might uh, show off their obliques versus hide them with their arm or all dependent on what your physique is like. So Mm -hmm. it's about tailoring each individual pose for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's for a guy, right? But what about a girl? Like if you're in a front pose or a side pose as a bikini athlete, just the way that you actually, you know, rotate your waist can create a completely different illusion for how big your waist actually is, right? Same with your shoulders, same with how much you pop your glute. Like if you learn how to pose, you can completely manipulate the way that your physique looks, right? And it can look either really, really good and you can make yourself look way better or sometimes you cannot pose to your advantage and unfortunately you can't actually show off your strength. So that's what goes to show that posing is so gosh darn important and the sooner you start learning and the sooner you start practicing the better honestly we've probably said it so many times before but i don't think that you can practice posing enough yeah it's uh definitely something to start early during Mm -hmm. the prep like i would say at least start 20 to 25 weeks out Mm -hmm. and choose obviously choose which division you're going to do and start practicing and Probably having a posing coach or someone to assist you is our one of our first recommendations. Yeah, definitely. So get your hands or get 
opposing coach's hands on you. (laughs) Either way, definitely tee up with opposing coach who really knows their shiz. You know, get yourself a good posing coach, someone who has a good reputation, someone who can definitely pose themselves and that they- Or a coach who assists with posing. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless, make sure that they know what they're doing, right? Mm. Because that's what you want to do, right? You want to start learning early and you want to start learning the right thing, okay? You want to start- practicing the right poses because even I've been in this situation before, right? Where I've done a lot of posing practice, but potentially I wasn't actually doing the poses that actually suited my physique, right? Technically they were correct poses, but they would look better on someone else who had a different physique compared to mine. So start early and make sure that you are learning the correct poses for your division and for your physique right from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. And when we actually look at the posing itself, there are a number of things we can mention. So for example, I mentioned this at the start, but the endurance aspect of posing. So one thing getting into the pose and holding it for half a second, but what about when they, especially like the rear poses for guys, they're notoriously difficult and they're held for quite a while, like doing a back double bicep or rear lat spread where you have to tense you spike your calf, tense your hamstrings, tense your glutes, mm-hmm. tense your lower back, your upper back, your Yeah, your triceps arms. on. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of things to think about. And I remember when I teach people posing for the first time and like I even get them into any pose, like a side chest, they're like, wow, I have to remember all this stuff at the same time. Yeah. And the trick is that's why you practice it so much because it literally turns into muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Like I get into a pose now, like a side chest, like weights on the front leg, glutes are tensed, um, all that kind of stuff, like core is on. And even switching one of those things off, like doing a side chest, but then not having your core tensed, it it, it kind of ruins the pose. Yeah, it creates a completely different illusion, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's the thing, right? It's definitely about quality over quantity. So you definitely want to be doing quality posing, right? But you definitely want to be starting further out as well. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend like just learning to pose three or four weeks out from a show, right? Because you're going to try to jam in all of these really long sessions all together. If you start months out from your show, but you're just doing like 10 or 15 minutes every single day, that repetition, right? It really does become motor learning. Yeah. And you just That's where the, the magic happens once it becomes motor learning. Because like, even now I'm having to learn classic poses and what you said earlier about choosing poses that are right for you. Like I'm, I'm completely ignoring a few, especially the classic poses on the knees. Cause like I can't pull those off for mm-hmm. my physique. So I, I'm choosing poses that work well for my proportions and sure I can get into some of them now, but like one, I can't hold them Two, They feel really awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, and three, I'm struggling to pull a vacuum with all of them, even though I can pull a vacuum easily normally. So that's why I'm practicing them every day now to, um, make it motor muscle memory motor learning i guess maybe even an analogy for it would be like for example imagine that you're studying for a test at the very end of the uni semester right if you cram for that test during swat back you're probably not likely to do nearly as well on the test compared to if you started studying in week one but you were just revising for 10 or 15 minutes every single day right just going over and over and over in your in the back of your head right you know your shiz so that when it comes to test day or it comes to show day you just get up there right and it's it all just comes naturally right like Mm. you just you just move you hardly even have to think about it your your body your feet just get into the right positions your hands and your waist 
it just gets into the right position, right? And it pays off because gosh darn, you are putting so much gosh darn effort into building your physique and really just trying to present the absolute best version of you. But you really need to be able to showcase that in the absolute best way. Again, you can have an amazing body, but if you can't showcase it, I'm sorry, but you will be beat by someone who probably arguably doesn't ha might not be as lean or as muscular as you. But if they know how to turn on their quads or whatever it may be, they're going to beat you. Yeah. And probably the final, one of the final things we'll say is in regards to transitions and like for transitions are basically what you do in between poses. So you might do a quarter turn and I don't know, tense your tricep, do a flourish or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And again, it will depend which division you're in. Like for men's fitness in Australia, uh, I'm not sure if, I don't think other countries have men's fitness, maybe a couple will, but basically it's like men's fitness would be more dance-like, more of a flourish. Whereas bodybuilding would be more staccato, more mm -hmm. robot-like, but it would still be some something to transition in between poses. You wouldn't just like turn sideways and then get into the pose. That would be that's still not wrong, but like adding an element of transitions would uh, make people catch, make you more eye-catching, basically. Yeah, definitely. Like if there's ten or twenty people up on the stage, right, and there's only four judges, if you're doing little things that other people aren't, and they look nice, right, you're not <laughs> looking like a fool. Like that is going to cause the judges to look at you a bit more, right? Really drawing that attention. And again, bodybuilding is, is becoming so much more popular and the standard is so high. So if you want to be at the top, you really have to raise your standards. You have to take this very seriously and you literally have to prepare in every way possible. Yeah, definitely. So get a posing coach, make sure you practice early and yeah, definitely invest in someone who knows their stuff mm -hmm. even better if you get a package deal and your your coach who also does your prep knows posing as well like keep it all in one area yeah i really like how you mentioned like investing in someone who knows their stuff right and like actually has that skill set because we all have our own skill sets right like guys if you're an accountant or if you're a doctor or you know whoever you may be right you would expect people to come to you to take advantage of your skill set right they're not going to google how to do their accounting or gosh i hope they don't google you know a diagnosis for themselves if they really need to see a doctor whoever they may be right if you expect people to come and take advantage of your skill set and pay you then you need to be willing to take advantage of other people's skill sets and pay them too right because that's how you're truly going to get better again bodybuilding it's definitely not a cheap sport you are going to spend quite a bit of money if you want to you know really learn from the best but if you do find a good quality posing coach and hell, even if they charge you a hundred bucks for a 45 minute session or whatever, if they're good quality, that's going to be a really, really good investment on your part compared to just like learning how to pose from YouTube, right? Or learning how to pose from some random person you saw on Instagram or something like that, or just teaching yourself, right? Even buying posing guides, I would say like mm. posing guides are great, but you don't have anyone there to refine mm -hmm. what you're doing wrong or refine the pose for you. So, cause there are, there are a lot of posing guides on YouTube mm -hmm. or eBooks and that's just my opinion though. Like, yeah. I, I've tried learning from a posing guide uh, for classic posing and I ended up just 
getting someone to help me. Yeah, it makes such a difference actually having someone there with you one-on-one because they're truly looking at you. You also want someone who has patience, right? Because especially if you're learning to pose from the start, one, they need to have exceptional attention to detail. So if you do the smallest thing wrong, right? You move your toe into the wrong position or your hands a bit too high or whatever, they'll tell you, nope, do it again. Nope, do it again until you freaking get it right, right? Like they need to have that patience and that really eye and just almost that OCD. Uh, so I think that is just, that's super important. And the last thing I just wanna mention, especially for girls, because as bikini competitors or a figure athlete, most female competitors really, especially when we are in our back pose, we're definitely arching our backs a lot. And especially during your transitions, like if you're transitioning from a front pose into a back pose or a side pose into a back pose, you can't drop your hips, right? If you drop your hips, you're gonna get those little creases under your butt. It's not gonna look very nice, especially when you're walking. And that's why they actually get girls, you know, to walk to the back of the stage because they actually want to see what moves, what jiggles, right? So that's why girls actually always need to be in that arched back and just walking very slowly and also not dropping your hips when you're doing transitions. What I'm getting to here is that something that's really helped me this past season is always keep my hips up and keep that back arch is actually practicing a lot of yoga. Like I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but Ever since COVID hit, I actually started doing daily yoga since March, right? Just like 10 to 20 minutes every single day. I'm using an app called Down Dog. But anyway, just getting into like the upward facing dog, into the cobra pose, just doing a whole bunch of different yoga moves. I found that that's actually really helped me with my lower back positioning during posing. So that's just a little tip for you there. Um, if you don't want to drop those hips and keep those glutes looking peachy the entire time you're on stage. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll move on to the next question. Excellente. All right. So this next question says, does posing and training actually deliver glycogen into muscle tissue or is that just bro science? So this is a popular question or a popular sort of protocol in peak week where you basically are carbing up, so you're shuttling more. Well, the goal is to achieve a fuller physique, so you're consuming more carbohydrates to be stored as glycogen, which increases muscle fullness. And what the question asker is saying is, does doing activity like posing or training, will that actually increase the, I guess, the shuttling of glucose into the muscle? Yeah, and the cool thing about this is that it actually does. So. On all of our cells in our body, we actually have these things called glute receptors. So there's glute receptors. Not to be confused with the bum. No, (laughs) G-L-U-T, not G-L-U-T-E. But these glute receptors, so it's all the way from glute one up to glute five. Now, glute receptors help to transport glucose into our cells. Now, the main one here that's actually on skeletal muscle tissue and adipose tissue is GLUT4. So GLUT4, it is insulin dependent. So this actually requires insulin to be released from the pancreas, right? And it goes over to an adipose cell or a skeletal muscle cell. It attaches to an insulin receptor that causes a cascade of reactions. And then that causes GLUT4 from inside the cell to come to the cell surface. And then glucose can come through that uh, little transporter. So transport glucose into your cell so that you can either use that as energy 
or you can store the glucose as glycogen. But the really cool thing about this is that, so you can either activate GLUT4 either with insulin or it can be insulin independent in response to skeletal muscle contractions. So they've demonstrated this in the research that, for example, if I gave you a bunch of carbs, right? And you went onto a leg extension and you only did leg extensions with one leg and then they did a biopsy, you would actually store more glycogen in the leg that was exercising compared to the leg that wasn't exercised, which is really, really neat. So pretty much, yes, you can redirect your glucose to certain muscle groups. That's not to say that no glucose will go into the other cells because man, you're always moving your body, right? Even if you went for a walk or something, but primarily you can direct more glucose into certain cells. But I'd say, certainly say the same for posing because posing is a whole bunch of right isometric contractions and you know whole body posing as well. Mm. So I'd say that if you got carved up and you did some posing, you would definitely be recruiting that glucose into yeah. those muscle bellies. And I mean, even just to describe it on a more basic level, like if you're the action of doing exercise in a particular muscle group that uses up glycogen. So let's say if you're doing a leg extension that is going to deprive you of glycogen in your legs or in your quads mainly and therefore that glycogen needs to be replaced mm -hmm. so even just looking at it like that if you use up glycogen it has to be replaced even if it's a small amount it still creates that turnover of glycogen mm -hmm. so for this reason what we do in peak week is we usually have the last heavy leg session maybe a week before or six days before just to try and alleviate inflammation mm -hmm. and then we might do like one full body pump session the two days before. So just, um, again, we don't want to contribute much to inflammation of the quads and hamstrings and glutes. So we just do some gentle leg extension, leg curl, but that still achieves the purpose of getting glycogen shuttled to that area. And then we yeah do another upper body session and then stage show day. Yeah. And that's for a bodybuilder yeah, pretty yes. much. Yeah. And what's the reasoning behind that? Like, why wouldn't you want to train your legs closer to show? Well, as I mentioned, it's mainly due to inflammation. Mm -hmm. So like imagine tensing your legs during a workout, like the, the details don't show. They Sure, they look might look a bit bigger, but actually I would argue that they look smaller because mm -hmm. none of the details show, so they don't pop as much. Yeah, and, and that's something that's definitely different for guys versus girls or male competitors versus female competitors because I know that girls backstage, they're pumping up their glutes, they're pumping up their legs, right? But I, you'd never see a guy backstage doing a bunch of squats or something. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would hope not at least. Cause like, it just doesn't make sense. When you, like even next time you're in the gym, like take a photo of, of your quads before you get a pump and then go on the leg extension, get a good pump, do four sets of 30 reps and then take a photo after that. Yeah. They're gonna look very different. That's exactly why I never take photos of Jack on leg day, even though I offer, you know, he's like, no, I'm literally just too pumped right now. But I find I'm the opposite. I need a pump and I think a lot of girls are the exact same. So it's that, it's that fine line between males and females and the categories, right? Cause yeah, you guys are up there doing those isometric contractions with your quads. You want those separations. Girls, we want a bunch of blood in our glutes, right? So that we look really full. Mm. Yeah, we're definitely not looking for lines or anything in there. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we've explained that question. Mm -hmm. It definitely does make sense. At the same time, it's probably not going to be a crazy difference in terms of whether you train or not. Like mm -hmm. even I think even the action of walking and using your body 
it's not like it's you're gonna notice a significant difference because mm-hmm. like at the end of the day glycogen has to go somewhere and yeah. it's going to be stored in your muscles and your liver glycogen so it's not really stored in the blood <laughs> so. yeah well it's stored in adipose tissue right so it's like if you're getting a full well, if you're body lean pump, enough yeah <laughs> yeah but that's the thing right so if you're getting a full body pump you're causing those contractions so you're trying to redirect it to your muscles rather than your adipose tissue mm. so yeah in in the best case scenario you should obviously do a pump session like we're mm-hmm. not i'm not advocating for for not doing that yeah dude get pumped up no one should be on stage flat <laughs> yes i can certainly agree with you there but we'll move on to the next question so this one says Recommend pre-workout meal 30 minutes prior to AM training. Awesome. So I think this would probably be applicable to a lot of people because, you know, generally if you do work a nine to five job, you either train in the morning or you train in the afternoon. And a lot of people just like to get it done in the morning, right? Mm. Because after a full day of work, you're just pooped. You want to go home. Yeah, I would definitely do that as well. Like my energy would be pretty low by the by the afternoon. Yeah, that's what I even used to do in those first few years of uni, right? Just train in the morning before a whole day of classes. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, getting into this pre-workout morning nutrition, right? So I guess if you are up training at the crack of dawn, right? And you wake up and you say you've got about 30 minutes to eat before you go and hit a training session. I think if we're thinking about nutrition here, the first macronutrient that comes to mind for me would be carbohydrates and primarily getting some glucose from those carbohydrates. Now, the thing about this is that it's not necessarily going to provide fuel for your muscles when you're training because when we're training, right, the fuel source for that is intramuscular glycogen, which is quite local. So the glycogen that you already have stored within your muscles, that's what's going to provide you with the energy when you are resistance training. But if you are training first thing in the morning, right, prior when you were asleep, what your body was actually depending on to regulate blood glucose levels was liver glycogen. Now the liver can hold somewhere around 110 grams of glycogen, I believe, but usually that's pretty depleted by the time you actually wake up. So liver glycogen, it is predominantly responsible for actually regulating blood glucose levels and so that we have enough blood glucose in our bloodstream and our central nervous system too. So for this, if you were to eat something first thing in the morning, I'd probably advocate for it to be some carbohydrates. That's simply just so that you get an initial blood glucose level spike, get some energy into you so that you just literally feel like you have more energy during Mm. that training session. However, your actual muscles contracting aren't necessarily going to be relying on the blood glucose. They're relying on your pre-stored glycogen. Yeah, I think it is important to outline that it is a misconception that the food that you eat half an hour before your training session or even an hour before, it's not going to be stored as glycogen. No, yeah, like glycogen storage, you know, it takes like 24, maybe up to 72 hours to maxly synthesize glycogen, but it definitely takes more than 30 minutes. Mm. So even that intra-workout shake that you have, it's not going to be stored as glycogen either. Mm -hmm. Like mainly those, like if there's still not that great evidence to support that they do work and it's mainly just like as a blood glucose spike, as Tierra Mm -hmm. said, it can be psychological, it could be placebo. And yeah, I'm not saying don't use them. It can be an efficient means at 
um, increasing your carbohydrate intake during Mm -hmm. the day. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, consuming glucose is actually really interesting because we actually have carbohydrate sensors in the mouth, right? So when we actually consume something with glucose in it, and you don't even have to swallow it, right? Like they've actually done studies where they just use carbohydrate rich mouth rinses. So you just swish around some glucose in your mouth and then you spit it out right? There's receptors in your mouth that connect up to your brain that are connected with, you know, the reward center and actually motivation and, you know, pushing you to train a little bit harder despite not actually consuming any energy. And the cool thing is the body's actually really smart because they've tried to trick it by consuming something that's still sweet, like glucose, but perhaps like a sugar-free drink, you know, something with sugar alcohols in it or artificial sweeteners, but they don't get the same performance effects. So the Mm. body knows when you're consuming glucose or not. Yeah, it definitely is very neat that, especially that I can just tell the difference between uh, non-energy and then energy-containing drinks. Mm But I think it's important to recognize that not everyone is going to be able to like have oats 30 minutes prior to their session. So Mm -hmm. there needs to be some consideration in terms of what you choose to eat. Mm -hmm. And I think there's nothing wrong with having something like oats or something that is more dense as long as you can handle it um, gastrointestinal wise and that doesn't provide any discomfort because you still are going to get that, I guess, slightly delayed blood glucose spike. Mm -hmm. But... It, it just might impact your training due to GIT reasons. Yeah, certainly. I think if you're going for something that's higher fiber, it's definitely going to take a heck of a lot longer to digest. Like mm. the reason why you would be consuming food pre-workout in the first place, if it's 30 minutes before workout and you've previously been fasted, it's literally to get that food actually into your bloodstream. So I'd say you'd probably want to go for more of a faster digesting carbohydrate. So something like maybe, you know, some white toast with some honey on it, right? Or even like an, literally, you could have an intra-workout shake. You Mm. could go for some Gatorade or Powerade or... Everyone's in a different boat though. Like Mm. what if you have to consume 5,000 calories a day? Like having two pieces of white bread isn't really going to cut it. (laughs) then dude, get on the Gatorade. (laughs) But yeah, and the intra-workout, right? But at the same time, it always depends too. Like if you are training fasted, or a bowl of cereal. Yeah, a bowl of cereal, right? Get some uh, Fruit Loops in there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you are training fasted in the morning, I guess you do have to mainly consider that your pre-workout meal technically was your meal the night before. So mm. it was your dinner. So if you are training fasted consistently, then I would generally recommend probably, and I would advocate for you having more carbohydrates at dinner time. you know, so you can store a little bit more glycogen for that AM session. Mm. Which is also why I think that training fasted in an energy surplus is going to be much more efficient than training in a deficit because Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, waking up the next morning, your muscle glycogen won't be as full compared to a surplus. So you won't get as good a session in and you can do, you can eat all the food you want prior to your session half an hour before, but it's not going to increase your intramuscular glycogen. Yeah. That's where it's a sticky situation, right? Because especially if you're in a deficit, like and we've spoken about about this before, you know, we're generally advocates for actually putting more of your carbohydrates at earlier portions of the day, because behaviorally, if you have more energy, right, you're likely to burn more energy through NEAT, even through training sessions as well, right? If you're training during the day too, if you have a few meals beforehand. So if you are in an energy deficit, if you are training first thing in the morning, and then you're trying to backload a lot of your carbohydrates, you might just not feel your best during the day, right? You might be conserving a lot more energy. You might be really hungry. You might fall into 
uh, some habits of actually like hoarding food later mm. for night. Yeah, which just um, isn't as great for like protein distribution Mm-mm. or just appetite regulation, energy levels. Because we know that when you eat more at breakfast, you usually do expend more energy during the day as well. But that's just something to can take into consideration if you are in an energy deficit. Maybe it might be worthwhile to consider managing your time or um, restructuring your days so that you can even train in your lunch hour or train after work or train in the evening as opposed to having that fairly close to being fasted session in the morning with an energy deficit. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, like if resistance training is your big golden ticket item to really retaining your muscle mass, right? And you're really trying to get the most out of that training session and you're training, you know, four or five times or six times a week, right? I really do think that it's worth just changing your routine around a little bit so that you can get in a meal or two right before that training Mm. session and a good quality meal afterwards. And something I do with my clients as well as if they're busy during the week, I I usually advocate training on the weekends because then they can, they can rest twice during the week. And that means they might only have three sessions during the week and two on the weekends. Yeah. It definitely is all about priorities. Like obviously if, if training first thing in the morning works well for you and that's the thing as well, right? Like you don't necessarily need to eat something prior. Some people actually just genuinely feel better training on a fasted stomach, you know, and kudos to them. But If you aren't eating anything prior, then there's an even larger emphasis on the post-workout period because you really have been training, you know, in a fasted state. And generally, sports nutrition guidelines, remember, we are recommending that you have a pre and a post-workout meal within four to six hours of one another to really maximize your performance, but also maximize your recovery and maximize protein synthesis. So the thing about that is, though, that Muscle protein synthesis, the actual best way to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is actually doing resistance training. That's going to cause the greatest signal, but you always have to back that up with a protein bolus too. So if you've been training in a fasted state, then we definitely advocate post-workout, definitely getting in some protein. So we're saying 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight of an HBV protein source, so protein source from an animal, or at least a vegan protein source that has all of the essential amino acids and at least, you know, two to three grams of leucine in there. So that is a, that's like a non-negotiable post-workout. And especially if you've been training fasted too, you don't need to finish like, you know, your last set of leg extensions and then down a protein shake or something, but you need to do it during that. Last <laughs> yes, that's right. During the last <laughs> rep. Um, but no, I would say get it in sooner rather than later, right? You don't have to drink it in the, in the changing room, but like don't wait three or four hours and then finally eat a meal. You know, it, it should still be a priority, right? Mm, definitely. Yeah. It's, um, as Tierra said, like, especially after that two hour window, like I would say get it in sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so convenient about a protein shake. Yeah, absolutely. So protein definitely there. But again, if you've been training fasted too, right, get some, even if you haven't been training fasted, get some carbohydrates in as well. Maybe around like 60 grams of carbohydrates or something post-workout would be a good amount. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, hopefully that answered your question. But did we actually give like actual examples? food i said cereal (laughs) okay so we got cereal yeah we've got cereal toast toast with jam Mm -hmm. things like i mean cereal is very broad granola rice bubbles a banana banana (laughs) fruit 
Yeah. Dried fruit, dates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all that good stuff. Uh, even Powerade, Gatorade. And, oh, yeah, like VPA has this lean shake, right? So they've got, like, it's basically just a bit of protein powder and, like, some dextrose. That's another thing, too. There is some literature to show that, like, actually having a little bit of protein pre-workout or even during your workout can actually help to stimulate muscle mm. protein synthesis, help Microwave with recovery, pancake. too. Yep, you can microwave a pancake at 5 a.m. You do you. (laughs) Well, it's basically like a flour cake. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But yeah, just um, make sure that you eat something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I mean, it's kind of like a bit of a loaded question saying, what should you eat? You just eat something that your your body tolerates well. Mm -hmm. If it was me, like I would rather still prioritize whole food. So I would try and eat oats. Yeah. If I didn't eat oats, I would probably eat wholemeal bread or something. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, some oats with Milo cereal. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like, I'm not just going to have some, a bag of snakes because it's it's what I've just woken up. Like, I'm going to still try and fuel my body with whole foods. Yeah, me too. You know, even when I used to run at, like, 5 a.m., I would actually wake up around 4 a.m. Because I love breakfast so much, but I also need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I really do need to eat. So I'd wake up really early, and I would actually make myself, like, pancakes and stuff, you know? And then I'd go on, like, a 15-kilometer mm. run because... That's, you, yeah. You uh, need, anyway. it, it makes a difference, right? Actually feeling satiated, feeling like you have something in your stomach too. I think Jackson Pios actually even posted this study as well where people actually ate a meal with calories in it or they ate like a meal with konjac noodles or something in it, like completely different amounts of energy, but they still had food in their stomach. Apparently there was no difference in performance. Yeah, but you got to remember, were these people in a fed state or a... Yeah, I don't know. Like, were they in a surplus or deficit? Because mm-hmm. going back to you running, I bet if you were in a surplus for a chronic period, like six months, you would definitely not need to do yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. I was definitely in a deficit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you only you only generally wake up at 4 a.m. to eat pancakes when you're in a deficit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boys, those were the days. Whew. But uh, we'll We didn't move. even t- touch on caffeine. Yes. Yeah, I actually had a consult with someone of, uh, about a week ago or so, and um, it's interesting because, guys, we all know, you know, drinking coffee, it makes you poop, right? And they were actually saying that they think they were actually drinking their coffee too close to their morning training session, so it was actually causing a bit of digestive issues during their training session, which was mm. obviously impacting their performance. So that's another thing to watch out for, too. And again, it's that trade-off, right? Like, if I have this coffee, but I know I need at least 20 minutes, right, for my body to do its thing, and then I can leave the house, right? Like, does that mean I need to wake up maybe 20 minutes earlier to drink my coffee, go to the bathroom, then go to the gym, right? It's all about the timing. It really is all about the timing, man. It's, it's Have you so- perfected the timing? <laughs> I definitely have my practice with perfecting the timing. <laughs> but I'm serious. We, like, everyone, well, not everyone drinks coffee, but we've a lot e- of people experience this. <laughs> yeah. They're really the little the ones with the gophers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, there's all these different things to take into consideration. The, yeah. You probably haven't seen the SpongeBob one, but No, I haven't anyways. seen the SpongeBob I'll one. I'll show it to you after this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, we'll move on to our final question probably. So this one says, Can you run us through what you would eat in a peak week and do you backload the carbs? Okay, so during a peak week I change absolutely everything and I eat completely different food items that I haven't eaten for the 25 weeks prior. I really like to go for just like plain boiled asparagus, you know, just like baked fish and uh, only salt and a squeeze of lemon. No other spices, no other carbs because I'm trying to deplete myself for that backload. But 
you know, that's pretty much me. <laughs> oh, and I'm drinking like six gallons of water too. Six gallons. Wow. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm a water buffalo. <laughs> Do you get good results from that? Unfortunately not. I don't know why. Cause like, you know, I, I, I'm doing everything right. You know, I'm following what I'm reading on the forums, but I don't know. Like I keep getting on stage and like, I just, I don't know. I don't look as good. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what's up, man. Yeah. Well, you're certainly having a lot of water. I'm surprised you don't get hyponatremia then <laughs> i blame I'm, I'm gonna blame it on the asparagus <laughs> mm. no but guys no jack what what do you eat in a peak week so everything stays very similar and typically we do use backloads for a lot of our clients because we've said this many times before but in a prep we usually do two or three high days a week with all of our competitors because we find that although there's not i there's not yet i want to say yet because i think there will be mm-hmm. but there's no very concrete evidence to show that having high days throughout the week makes a significant difference to weight loss and training performance. But we do it for another reason as well, which is kind of, it basically does a practice peak week for every single week. So Mm -hmm. especially for like the guys doing three back-to-back high days, you can see how they look on, let's say Thursday, Friday, and Saturday would be show day. And you can see how they look each week, how they respond to those carbohydrates, whether we need more, whether we need less, uh, the food sources, the timing, all that kind of stuff. So to be honest, like the peak weeks are never really an issue for us because we practice them so many times. Mm -hmm. And basically food sources stay the same. There might be a slight manipulation of dietary fiber, but I'm not that bothered because again, if they've practiced it like five or six times and they wake up Saturday, they look great, they don't have any abdominal discomfort from lots of fiber, then it's not it's not really an issue. And most people, they, they don't eat like a significant amount of fiber anyway. They mm-hmm. might get in there 30 grams, they might go up to 40, maybe 50 if they're going hard on the vegetables. But I don't see many people going over 50 grams. Yeah, well, I'm looking at you <laughs> and me. <laughs> We might go over, but that's the thing, right? Like a lot of people generally do advocate for keeping fiber on the lower end, perhaps Mm. on that, maybe the day before the show, or maybe one to two days before the show, just to reduce gastrointestinal bulk. But at the same time, you don't want to risk the chance of not going poop, right? (laughs) And and like the whole thing of peak week, it is not doing new things. And then if you're doing a new thing and let's say you've had like oats the whole of prep and then you're eating cream of rice to to have like a low fiber food, Mm -hmm. you're then introducing a completely new food. And again, if you look good, then don't change anything. And that's exactly what I'm doing with my competitor, Callum. Like we're just running the same protocol because he's responded so well. And we're not really changing many of his food sources because there's just no need to. Yeah, the exact same with Jess, right? Like, I think we've been doing two high days for her since like 12 weeks out or something. And it's basically been the same thing week after week after week. And her body's just like clockwork, right? Like, and it's very similar for a lot of people I find who do their lower carbohydrate days and their weight is just like stagnant. And then after two high carb days, they just get that big whoosh, right? That weight Mm -hmm. drop, right? And again, it's like clockwork. So you're just preparing and preparing. The really cool thing about Jess this past week is that she actually had a photo shoot, right? And we were basically able to do the exact same 
protocol, five low days, two high days. And then she was able to do the photo shoot and we got to see how she looked on the photo shoot day. And I've been checking with her every single time she's had a high carb day too. So I can see her physique as well. And it just works so well, right? You know, so if you plan ahead, if you're practicing these things the whole time, right? Like as long as you don't change anything, there's no reason for anything to go wrong. Yeah. And that's, if anything, why we don't do Mm -hmm. anything special because there's just no need to. And unless we've practiced it before, then we're just going to keep things pretty much the same. Yeah. And the exact same people always mention water and sodium, right? Keep those things the same, right? The body is very, very good at regulating hydration status and electrolyte balance. Okay. So as long as you keep those things the same, as long as you are having enough sodium and water to begin with, but we always ensure that our clients are always salting their meals. Right. And then again, if, if you have a high carbohydrate day with a high carbohydrate day, you're likely drinking and having a bit more water with that food. And let's say you had an extra meal, you have a little bit more salt on that meal, or you can get very specific with it if you want and ensure that like maybe two or three weeks out on their high carb days, they're always having, you know, half a teaspoon of iodized table salt on each meal or something, just keeping that consistent. And then on show day, before you start pumping up, you know, have half a teaspoon of salt for, for a good pump. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, like the less you change, the better results you're guaranteed. I would say as long Mm. as you're ready, as long as you're ready. Yeah. The hardest part and the what makes you stand out the most is your conditioning and your Mm -hmm. muscularity. So if you've nailed those, all you got to do is show up Mm -hmm. with some good posing. Absolutely. You know, like, like peak week isn't going to take you, you know, from like looking 10 pounds over stage weight to looking in shape. Like, sorry about that. But you know, I reckon at the beginning of a peak week, the hard work should be done and it really should be a massive stress relief. And you should just, you know, with training as well, right? Like training volume starts to reduce, you're chilled out, carbs are starting to taper up. You're just in the zone, you're practicing, you're posing, right? You're just getting really excited. Like it's just, it's a very celebratory week if you've done all the work in the weeks prior. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. I think that was a great answer. And we'll move on to one thing that we learned this week. All right, Jack. So what did you learn this week? So I, I actually really enjoy creating a lot of the pictorial content for, for TBD mm-hmm. over on Instagram. So if you don't follow us there, definitely head over and check it out. So we use, I use Canva for a lot of things. I'm sure a lot of other... Sorry, Canva us? Canva. Canva. It's the Australian pronunciation. I think it is actually an Australian company as well. Canva. And yeah, I read somewhere that the owner was actually very, very successful during this lockdown period across the globe because everyone invested in Canva to do their work from home, produce content. And yeah, it's a, it's an amazing platform for free, mm-hmm. but the paid version offers a lot of extra like images that are non-copyright, mm. which is great. Anyway, I learned something this week. I was creating a new template for our podcast, which the this which will actually be released this week so if you listen to this episode we would have released our first new excerpt from the podcasts Mm -hmm. in audio format and pictorial format and i was basically researching how to create this thing called a waveform where it's the you know when on like the hi-fi system when people talk it has the bars that go up and down yeah yeah but i basically learned how to add that to a to, to our voices and on the still image as well. Mm-hmm. So that's what I learned and I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, so now you guys all know that Jack's really the guru when it comes to uh, the TBD Instagram page. He's got an eye for making those things look 
very good, very symmetrical, right? Mm. And then I've got the little fingers that type. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not very creative when it comes to drawing or art, but mm-hmm. I, I'm a bit OCD-ish, so that works out well for Instagram. Yeah, you're very good. You're very good at your job. <laughs> Thanks. And what did you learn? So this week I learned that if your dog chews up their leash, right, and you're like stuck for, oh my gosh, I want to take my dog for a walk, but they chewed up their leash, right? What you can actually... A frequent occurrence. (laughs) Literally a frequent occurrence with our dog. Uh, Don't leave the leash on the ground. Um, But anyway, if you're looking for a last minute leash for your dog, what you can actually use is like the clips from a duffel bag. So you know if you guys have like... (laughs) I'm just saying, man, like you need to take your dog for a walk, but you don't have a leash. You're not going to like get a rope or something. What about so, an extension cord? Dude, okay, as long as it's not plugged in or whatever. But no, don't use an extension cord. Use the thing from the from your duffel bag. So if you guys have like one of those bags that go over your shoulder, right? Like a gym bag or a duffel bag. And it's got like that long, the long strap. I think strap. everyone knows what you mean. Cool. With the two little clips, you just unclip that from your bag. And then the clip just perfectly goes onto your dog's leash. And then you hold on to the end. They don't know end, the difference, do they? Off they flip and go, right? You guys are off walking. So, um, yeah. Or hell, like if you're, if you've got friends coming over with all their dogs and then everyone's like, let's go for a walk. And you're like, oh gosh, I only have one you leash. just wake Sam up now. I'm sorry, Sam. Uh, but you know, there's, <laughs> she got really excited hearing that there's 10 dogs coming over. But, you know, everyone's like, oh, gosh, we need to take the dogs for a walk, but there's no leashes, right? Just get out your duffel bags. So um, there you go. Hey, that's what I learned this week. Still walking our dog. But anyway, guys, thank you very much for tuning in for episode 93. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag yourself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.